One day you will put it all on the table before God. Everything on the table because you don't know what to do next. One day you'll realize that it's not so much what's on the outside and the the circumstances that are challenging you, the circumstances that may be befuddling you. You'll, You'll realize it's what's going on inside that is the most important thing in your life. And one day, you will pursue God in a way that you've never done before. And you will find that God is faithful. So a new series, here we go, The Pursuit of God. And I'm going to ask you for something at the start of this series. I'm going to ask you to think out of the box about pursuing God in a way that maybe you haven't thought about it before. I'm going to ask you to to go to another level of your prayer, another level of your desire, your passion to be who God wants you to be in Christ. Maybe to connect to to something, uh, connect to, to reading scripture in a new way, but to just to stop for a minute and go, let me think out of the box about this. What could happen if I? Let me tell you a little out-of-the-box story that happened to me earlier this week. I was at dinner with a good friend and uh, got to the end of the dinner and the dinner was great and, and, and my friend said he wanted to have dessert and so I signed up for dessert too. I signed up for dessert too. Like, I want to I do this dessert thing. So um, I actually ordered and I said, I'd like the chocolate cake. I love chocolate. A little bit of chocolate every day is a good thing. Uh, I don't know what's going on with the mic, but if, if I have to do something, let me know. Uh, so, chocolate cake, I'm, I'm ready for it. I sign up for it. Lady comes back, the waitress comes back, and she says, sorry, sir, there's no chocolate cake. You're going to have to have something else. I said, okay, the raspberry pie. I didn't want the raspberry pie. Okay, raspberry pie. My friend says, I'll have that, that trio or that assortment of desserts. So, she comes back, she brings him the assortment of desserts, whereupon I see <laughs> that he has chocolate cake. It's a little piece of chocolate cake, I understand that, but he's got this whole thing of, of dessert going on, and the chocolate cake is right there, and she puts in front of me the raspberry pie, and I go, I don't want the raspberry pie. <laughs> I, said, I said, hey, hey, listen, what if, he's got that chocolate cake, I said, and she goes, yes, that's a small piece. I said, I have this idea. What about you put together like three small pieces <laughs> for me, and that's my chocolate cake. And she acted like she had never thought about this before in her life. And I said, I am thinking out of the box here. <laughs> and so I got my chocolate cake. The raspberry pie went back. The chocolate cake came. I was happy. Everybody was, was happy. But you have to think out of the box sometimes. So that's what I'm asking you to do. Now, I'm not asking you to do that tonight when you go to dinner and the dessert comes and you go, hey, how about I have three creme brulees? I'm not asking you to do that. But I'm asking you to think about it spiritually. I'm asking you to think about it in terms of what God might want to be doing in your life if you took pursuit to a whole new level.
Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. put it this way. I find the great thing in this world is not so much where we stand as in what direction we are moving. To reach the port of heaven, we must sail sometimes with the wind and sometimes against it. But we must sail and not drift, nor lie at anchor. Let me tell you a story. It's an ancient story. It's from the book of Isaiah. It takes place about the year 700 B.C. And you're going to hear some names that are a little hard to pronounce, but don't worry about that, because in this story, which is historically true and accurate, there's, there's an application for you. There's a story that God's trying to tell you with you being in the story so I'm asking you to pursue this story this morning to the point where you see yourself in this story. Isaiah chapter 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Now King Hezekiah, he took over the kingdom when he was 25 years old. So now he is 39 years old, which is still young to be a king. And he's trying to figure this thing out as he goes along. He's getting a lot of experience as he goes along. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, made war on all the fortress cities of Judah and took them. Now, about the year 950 B.C., Solomon built about 50 fortress cities to protect the land. So these are like outposts. These are like little military things going on so that, you know, People can't get close to the hub. So about 50 of these cities out there, people are watching. People are trying to keep everybody safe. But Sennacherib, king of Assyria, his history tells us he came down, he took out 46 of these. So Jerusalem is being threatened. Danger is imminent. Then the king of Assyria sent his general, the Rapsica. Now the Rapsica is, is like this, this special military name. Uh, and and in, in our country, the highest ranking military office is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Then there's a vice chairman. So the Rapsheba is like the vice chairman. He's got this big, high-powered, high-level military position. The Rapsheba, accompanied by a huge army from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. So this whole army comes down and they're all gathered out front. The general stopped at the aqueduct where it empties, empties into the upper pool on the road to the public laundry. I don't know if you needed a lot of quarters to get in there or not, but it was on the road to the public laundry. Three men went out to meet him. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, in charge of the palace. Shibna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the official historian. So because they didn't have CNN, they didn't have any breaking news, they didn't have cameras, they had to have people with eyeballs on the situation. They had people who could record things and keep things for the, the, the years to come. What was said? What happened here? The Rabshaka said to them, tell Hezekiah that the great king, the king of Assyria, sort of braggadocious, the great king, Almost like the, the greatest king of all time, the great king, the king of Assyria says this, what kind of backing do you think you have against me? You're bluffing, and I'm calling your bluff. Your words are no match for my weapons. 
What kind of backup do you have now that you have rebelled against me? Egypt, don't make me laugh. Egypt is a rubber crutch. Lean on Egypt and you'll end up flat on your face. That's all Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to anyone who leans on him. And if you try to tell me, we're leaning on our God, isn't it a bit late? He's mocking them. He's mocking them and their faith. Hasn't Hezekiah just gotten rid of all the places of worship, telling you, you've got to worship at this altar. Be reasonable, face the facts. My master, the king of Assyria, will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Again, he's needling them. He's mocking them. He's making fun of them. You can't do it, can you? Even if we gave you 2,000 horses for free, everybody gets a free horse. You can't put out enough people to ride the horses. So how do you think, depending on flimsy Egypt's chariots and riders, you can stand up against even the lowest-ranking captain in my master's army. And besides, do you think I came all this way to destroy this land without first getting God's blessing? It was your God who told me, make war on this land, destroy it. So he's manipulating, he's using uh, spiritual coercion against them. He's just making these things up to intimidate them. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah answered the Rabshakeh. Please talk to us in Aramaic. We understand Aramaic. Don't talk to us in Hebrew with an earshot of all the people gathered around. Because a crowd had come out. Everybody knew that this was, this was showtime. It was big what was going on. They were gathered on the wall. They were all listening. And, and, and the leaders didn't want them to hear what was going on. They didn't want them to become afraid. But the Rabshakeh replied, Do you think my master has sent me to give this message to your master and you, but not also to the people clustered here? In other words, I want everybody to hear this. Everybody should hear and everybody should pay attention. It's their fate that's at stake. They're the ones who are going to end up eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine. This is the beginning of using bad language in politics. <laughs> Happened right there. And it still continues to this day. Then the Rabshakeh stood up and called out loudly in Hebrew, the common language, because he wanted everyone to hear Listen to the message of the great king, the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah's lies. He can't save you. And don't pay any attention to Hezekiah's pious sermons telling you to lean on God, telling you God will save us. Depend on it. God won't let this city fall to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Listen to the king of Assyria's offer. Make peace with me. Come and join me. Everyone will end up with a good life, with plenty of land and water, and eventually something far better. I'll turn you loose in wide open spaces with more than enough fertile and productive land for everyone. You're going to get the American dream. You're going to have it all. I'm going to give it all to you. Why wouldn't you take this offer? Don't let Hezekiah mislead you with his lies. God will save us. Has that ever happened? Has any God in history ever gotten the best of the king of Assyria? Look around you. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? The gods of Sepharvaim? Did the gods do anything for Samaria? Name one God that has ever saved its countries from me. So what makes you think that God could save Jerusalem from me? So arrogant. So braggadocious. The three men were silent. They said nothing. 
for the king had already commanded, don't answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, tearing their clothes in defeat and despair, went back and reported what the Rabshakeh had said to Hezekiah. So the story sets up. There's fear. There's intimidation. There's, there's political bantering. Isaiah 37. When King Hezekiah heard the report, he also tore his clothes and dressed in rough penitential burlap gunny sacks. Now in the King James or some of the older translations of the Bible, it would just say sackcloth. Uh, this is the message. We have penitential burlap gunny sacks and went into the sanctuary of God. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shevna, the secretary, and the senior priests, all of them also dressed in penitential burlap to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They said to him, Hezekiah says, this is a black day. We are in crisis. We're like pregnant women without even the strength to have a baby. Do you think your God heard what the Rabshakeh said, sent by his master, the king of Assyria, to mock the living God? And do you think your God will do anything about it? Pray for us, Isaiah. Pray for those of us left here holding the fort. And Isaiah is this great prophet. His, his book is just amazing. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 66, 2 from his book. And, and they know that, that he speaks for God. And there was a, there was a day that, that Isaiah's heart was just breaking. He saw a vision of, of heaven and of God high and lifted up. And God said, who shall I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah said, I will go for you. Here I am. I will go for you. And so his heartbeat was to do God's will on earth. His heartbeat was to know God deeply. And so he became very well known and respected and understood for that. So now they, they go to him. Pray for those of us left here holding the fort. Pray for us, Isaiah. Then King Hezekiah's servants came to Isaiah. Isaiah said, tell your master this, God's message. Don't be upset by what you've heard. All those words the servants of the Assyrian king have used to mock me. I personally will take care of him. I'll arrange it so that he'll get a rumor of bad news back home and rush home to take care of it. And he'll die there, killed a violent death. And so Isaiah sends this message and Hezekiah is in, in some way encouraged. And yet he has this, this message about destruction, impending destruction. And the whole key to his pursuit of God is about to take place. The whole key to his understanding of how do I, how do I think out of the box on this begins to take place. In verse 14, we read this, chapter 37. Hezekiah took the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And he went into the sanctuary of God and spread the letter out before God. Then Hezekiah prayed to God. God of the angel armies enthroned over the cherubim angels. You are God, the only God there is. God of all kingdoms on earth. You made heaven and earth. Listen, O God, and hear. Look, O God, and see. Mark all these words of Sennacherib that he sent to mock the living God. 
It's quite true, O God, that the kings of Assyria have devastated all the nations in their lands. They've thrown their gods into the trash and burned them. No great achievement since they were no gods anyway. Gods made in workshops, carved from wood and chiseled from rock. An end to the no gods. But now step in, O God, our God. Save us from him. Let all the kingdoms of earth know that you and you alone are God. So Hezekiah, he's the king. He's got a certain amount of power and clout. But he, he senses that this isn't about him. This isn't about you know, what's going on outside and, and all this intimidation. This is about him bringing his heartbreak before God, him bringing his plea before God. It's about him being humble and connecting to God, which is way out of the box for what a king would normally do. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this word to Hezekiah, God's message, the God of Israel, because you brought King Sennacherib of Assyria to me in prayer. Here is my answer, God's answer. Here's my answer. Here's God's answer. And it's this long answer, but I'll put it to you in very short translated Hebrew. God's answer. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Not going to happen. Sennacherib is not going to do anything. And then at the end of this really long explanation from God, it says, I know about your pretentious poses, talking to Sennacherib. I know about your pretentious poses, your officious comings and goings. And yes, the tantrums you throw against me because of all your wild raging against me, your unbridled arrogance that I keep hearing of. I'll put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I'll show you who's boss. I'll turn you around and take you back to where you came from. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Finally, this is God's verdict on the king of Assyria. Don't worry, he won't enter this city, won't let loose an arrow, won't brandish so much as one shield, let alone build a siege ramp against it. He'll go back the same way he came. He won't set foot in this city. In those days, they would build those ramps up against the wall, then they'd go in over the wall. Mm-mm, mm-mm, won't set a foot in this city. God's decree, I've got my hand on this city to save it. And then right at the end of chapter 37, we find out the end of the story. Then the angel of God arrived and struck the Assyrian camp. 185,000 Assyrians died. By the time the sun came up, they were all dead. An army of corpses. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, got out of there fast, back home to Nineveh, which was the capital city that he made himself and made it very opulent and very palatial. He, went, he, he goes back home. He retreats. As he was worshiping in the sanctuary of his god, Nisroch, he was murdered by his sons, Adramelech and Sharetzer. Now, right after it says, got out of there fast, back home to Nineveh, and that space before the next sentence starts, there's a period of 20 years. So he lives there 20 years. It's not bothering Jerusalem. But then his own sons take his life, which is an event recorded in extra-biblical history. His sons took his life with a sword. They escaped to the land of Ararat. His son, Esar Hadan became the next king.
king. Key moment. Key moment. The king puts the letter out and says, oh God, I need your help. I need your help. Please help me. So here's the question. Why pursue anything? Why pursue anything? Why not just sort of play it safe in life? Try to fly under the radar. Try to you know, keep everything at bay. Keep options open. It's simple. Because if you don't, if you don't pursue something, you'll be pursued by something. Something wants to take over your life. Something wants to defeat you. And the greatest pursuit that you can have is the pursuit of God. David Getz once wrote in his book, Death by Suburb, on most days, my biggest decision is lunch. The environment of the suburbs weathers one's soul peculiarly. There are environmental variables, mostly invisible, that oxidize the human spirit. What he's saying is, Day goes on after day. Things keep rolling season after season. After a while, you just kind of get, get numb. You're just kind of living your life. You take your car out in the morning. You bring your car back later. You have something to eat. You go to sleep. An alarm goes off. You go back, do it all over again. There are environmental variables, mostly invisible, that oxidize the human spirit. I think my suburb, as safe and religiously coded as it is, keeps me from Jesus, or at least obscures the real Jesus. Yet the same environmental factors that numb me to the things of God also hold out great promise. I can be challenged to pursue God. I don't need to escape the suburbs. I need to find Jesus here. What David Getz is saying is that he needs to pursue God, pursue Jesus right where he is, that's the challenge for all of us. Think out of the box about your pursuit. What's going to be different this week? How's it going to be different this month as we move into the fall season? Let me tell you about the pursuit of God. To pursue God is to figure out what is pursuing you and pick a direction. The best direction is always uphill. It's always going to be uphill. Just as John Maxwell said, and as he says over and over again, anything that's worthwhile, anything that's worth doing in your life is going to be uphill. It's all uphill. I had a, a privilege this week to spend three hours with Chris McChesney. Uh, he was the speaker on execution at the Global Leadership Summit. And at the debrief of the summit, they allowed us to to be in a classroom with him for, for three hours. It was, it was amazing. I mean, he just gave us everything and more than we could have ever imagined about execution and planning and strategy. Uh, but what he keeps talking about over and over and over again is the whirlwind. Life is a whirlwind. What keeps you from, from pursuing and what keeps you from, from saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to think out of the box, is the whirlwind of your life. It's everything that you have to do all the time just to keep your life on track. Everything that you have to do every day just to keep things going. And there's things that you have to do, and there's boxes that you have to check. There's places that you have to get to, and there's groceries that you have to get, and there's dinners that you have to make, and there's this trip here, and there's that trip there, and it seems like sometimes you're, you're doing big loop-de-loops, and the whirlwind just kind of becomes your life. 
But he says, if you're going to really have a real life, you've got to pick at least one thing and focus it and get it outside of the whirlwind and get it done strategically. Whatever that is, it's going to be uphill. Whatever that is, it's part of your pursuit of God, and you have to be really ready for that, and you have to really want that. You have to think out of the box to get there. Sean Anequist wrote a book, and it was at the, the Leadership Summit. Again, it's called Present Over Perfect, and in it, she writes about um, what it means to leave behind frantic for a simpler, more soulful way of living. And she says this, she grew up in a church that was uh, kind of moving, getting things done, strategic, uh, and she talks about that, that your spiritual life that you're pursuing is like a pie. And, and your pie gets sort of half full, maybe from church and things that you do, but there's still half of the pie that you have to be responsible for filling. And it's, it's a good way to understand it. You've got this pie, and you've got to keep filling the pie so you get a whole pie at some point. And she says, she says this. She's very happy for how she grew up, but she writes, again, filling that pie is the work of being an adult Christian. The privilege, really. Many of us rail against what we didn't get. Or we rail against what's being offered here or there, that what they're doing isn't perfect. And what they're doing over there isn't either. But as a pastor's daughter who has spent most of her life in churches, this is what I know. And I love her honesty at saying this. But as a pastor's daughter who has spent most of her life in churches, this is what I know. No church is perfect. And the best you can hope for is that each church experience you gather up throughout your life fills that pie a little bit. And in the same way that, for example, most artists aren't super administration and most driving leaders aren't profoundly tender and most engineers aren't big on drama, that's how churches are. Limited. Great at a couple of things not so great at the rest. That's how I am. That's how our church is. To pursue God is to get beyond that the church is the place where your whole pie gets filled in. To pursue God is to figure out what is pursuing you and pick a direction. The best direction is always uphill. What does God want you to do thinking out of the box that's going to fill in your high. To pursue God is to present your letter before him and let him do what he does best. And that's, that's what Hezekiah did. He, he gave up knowing what to do as the king. And he just said, here is the letter. God, here it is. I don't know what to do. I'm going to trust that, that you know better what to do than I could ever know. And there's somewhere in your life that you have a letter like that right now. Something that's out there, something that is intimidating, something that is kind of a little scary, something that is befuddling. What are you gonna do with it? So I get a letter, I get a letter last week, and the letter is from the Vatican. And so I open it up. It's a thank you note from one of the, the Pope's administrative helpers. It's got a picture of the Pope in it, and uh, it's a thank you because I sent the Pope a copy of my book. And I think, 
That's a pretty good system. You know, sometimes we don't even send thank you notes to each other, right? There's a thank you note right now that you remember you got to send, and you didn't send it, because this is the Vatican. They sent me a thank you note. The Pope sends it to me. It's a, I got to give it to him. That's a pretty good system that does that. So now I get this letter of thanks from the Pope. So what do I do with it? Do I, I show up at your house and say, I'm here for dinner. Well, we didn't invite you to dinner. I got a letter from the Pope. I think this makes me a very special person. I think you should want to have me for dinner. Well, I, well, after dinner, we'll all look at the letter together, and then you can all pat me on the back and hug me. Uh, do, I, do I take it to the car wash where I go up at Hilltop and say, I usually do the $4 thing, uh, drive through, but I want the $24.99, all the works. Uh, I'm going to pay $4 for that because I have a letter from the Pope. Uh, and I think you guys should wash my car, the whole shebang here, for the four bucks. But this Pope letter is at least worth another $20.99. You know, do I just carry this around and, and just pull it out whenever I need it? Get pulled over by the cops? Sorry, Pope letter. Pope letter. This is a trump card right here. You know, it's sort of silly. What, what we need to do is, is take these, these plaintive cries of our hearts these letters that come from the outside world that want to defeat us. And we need to go, God, here's a letter. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to, how to deal with this. But I'm going to trust that you are so big and you are so amazing that you're going to teach me something through this. You're going to, you're going to help me through this. Your will for my life is going to be revealed through this. Yesterday, I met a little kitten I named that kitten Hezekiah because the kitten had a plaintive, plaintive cry. It didn't know what to do. It was lost. It, was, it looked half drowned from the weather. It was bedraggled, and it was sitting out back of the back door going out this hallway right over here, just sitting there. And I, I was going down the hallway with Bodie and Wilson, ready to go home, and I hear, meow, meow. Now, the funny story is we have a guy that's worked here for a long time. He's cleaned our building for a long time. I've known him for 30 years. His name is Tony Roberts. And Tony has this joke that he plays on Bodie and Wilson where he hides and he goes, meow, meow. And Bodie and Wilson are like this. And so when I hear meow, meow, I, I stop and I go, okay, Tony. Tony, where are you? Is that you, Tony? And there's nothing. Tony's not there. I go, meow. I'm thinking, where's this coming from? I go to open the door and this little cat is bedraggled, was the definition of bedraggled, and, and was almost, you know, you could feel that it was, it was out of gas. This was it. Meow, meow. And so I get a box. Gail and I put some, some you know, towels and things in the box. We, we put the cat in the box. We get, uh, David Stoss brings in some food, and we get the cat all set up in our bathroom down here on the first floor and uh, and that's how she looked this morning little Hezekiah and I announced it in the first service and then somebody who is a member of Spring Branch and works at SPCA uh, came and, and took her and she's going to be fine and she's going to get the shots and, and somebody's going to adopt her but it was those were her last words she was done Yeah. God, is there anybody there? And why did God put her in the back of a church where a pastor was going to 
come out the door in just a second in, in her final moment, her final plea, because that's how God works. If God works like that for Hezekiah, God's going to work like that for you too. To pursue God is to present your letter before him and let him do what he does best. Finally, to pursue God is to know that you're willing to humbly do the next right thing to bring proper order to your life. You're willing to humbly do the next right thing to bring proper order to your life. So one of my big goals for the summer was to get to Wrigley Field. Uh, I was able to get there Tuesday night, saw the Cubs beat the Pirates 3 to zip, uh, and it was very, very exciting to be there. So at some point during the game, I was eating a lot of peanuts. I wanted to get something to drink. So I went out by myself, and, and Wrigley's an old ball field. When you're outside trying to buy something to eat, you can't see the game. It's like you're in a dungeon, and it was very different than, than like New Yankee Stadium or even Harbor Park where you can see the game. So I, I go to buy a, a Coke, and, and, and there's like, you know, those stanchions and the, the tape things, and, and so I couldn't really figure it out, and there was really nobody there, and, and it was long, it was 20 feet long if it wasn't 30 feet long, and so I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at it, and I went, and some guy walked up to me and said, hey, next time, why don't you get to the end of the line? And I thought, well, let's just take it outside right now. There are moments that you don't want to be a pastor. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I realized immediately, uh, oh, I'm in the wrong here, big time. So uh, I went, and I got in back of him, you know. So gave, give him some room, give him some space. He was bigger than I was. So he turns around, and I, and I think, here we go. So he turns around, and he goes, no, 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 it's okay. I, I didn't mean anything. And then we start talking, and, and now... Next summer, we're going fishing together in Montana. <laughs> we're, like, we're like hanging out. We're like, I mean, by, in, in one minute, you know, we went from take it outside to, I love you, man. <laughs> was, and we're like talking about baseball and having fun. And, you know, uh, and, and, and so it, it was, I did the right thing. I humbly did the right thing, which was Michael ducking under the thing. Wasn't right. Get to the end of the line like you know you're supposed to. And it brought order to my life. Outside of Wrigley, in the area it's called Wrigleyville, there's a, there's a fire station, engine company number 78. It's been there a long time. There's a plaque on the wall, and the plaque says, Erected A.D. 1915. And I, I focus in on A.D. in the year of our Lord, because it's a reminder. You don't get that reminder a lot these days, but we live always in the year of our Lord, in the year of our Lord, and God has an order for our life, and God has a plan for our life in the year of our Lord, and God wants to do something in our life, and for him to do that, I have to ask you this question. What pursuits will bring proper order to your life today? What pursuit, what thinking out-of-the-box pursuit will bring proper order to your life today. Maybe that's something you have to stop doing, start doing something else. Maybe that's 
something you have to go and seek forgiveness about. Maybe that's something that has to do with you know, things administratively or out of whack where you're working or maybe just need to, to spend some more time with God because you've been running and gunning and, and God's like been left in the dust somewhere. But what pursuit will bring proper order to your life today? It will make all the difference because you're living in the year of our Lord. To pursue God is to figure out what is pursuing you and pick a direction. The best direction is always uphill. To pursue God is to present your letter before him and let him do what he does best. To pursue God is to know that you're willing to humbly do the next right thing in order to bring proper order to your life. It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Here are the lessons of pursuit for today. There comes a time in your pursuit of God when gut-level prayer marks time like a scar marks a wound. There comes a time in your pursuit of God when hardship and pain will test your heart's ability to stay the course. That's how it was for Hezekiah. He stayed the course. There comes a time in your pursuit of God when the word can will remind you of who you are and what God made you to do. Six words that will change your life. God can. I can do what God has asked me to do. We can do what God has asked us to do together. You see, one day, one day, you will put it all on the table before God. Because that's the only place you can go. One day, you'll realize that it's not what's out here that matters the most, but it's what's going on in here. That matters more than anything. And one day you will pursue God with such a passion, thinking out of the box in a new way. You'll pursue God with such a passion that you will learn far beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is faithful and he's faithful to you. I find the great thing in this world is not so much where we stand as in what direction We are moving. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for an ancient story. Thank you for a story from thousands of years ago that touches our hearts today. Help us to see ourselves in the story and help us see our lives through the story. Father, allow us the humble honor of presenting everything to you, all that is bothering us right now, all that is scaring us right now, all that is befuddling to us right now, so that you can do what you do best. Father, we pursue you, and we know that you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.